Pushkin. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase and a member FDIC 2024 J.P. Morgan Chase and Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong. Radiant. Timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. This is Solvable. I'm Ronald Young Jr., Back in 1992, I was in the second grade and would occasionally watch this show on television called Captain Planet and the Planeteers. The power is yours! It was a superhero-themed environmentalist cartoon considered to be edutainment for kids. It fit in well with Bill Nye the Science Guy and Reading Rainbow. Each episode was built around an environmental problem often perpetuated by a supervillain. Then, the International Coalition of Planeteers would fight alongside Captain Planet to literally save the world. The show was very on the nose. It covered topics like littering, pollution, and in one particular episode, it talked about the hole in the ozone layer. That killjoy ozone layer blocks out the deadly rays. EFCs eat a hole in the ozone layer of Earth's atmosphere. But without the ozone, the sun's deadly ultraviolet radiation will pour down on us. Exactly. Supervillain Duke Nukem and his flunky assistant, who moved factories to Antarctica in order to open the backs of refrigerators and microwaves just to release the damaging chemicals. Those chemicals, called CFCs, or chlorofluorocarbons, actively create the hole in the ozone. Again, this is a kid show. I first saw this episode when I was in second grade, and I remember being really concerned. As an adult, I rarely hear about the ozone layer. I chalked this up to lack of interest and the news cycle moving on. But then I realized it's because this problem was actually solved. We had this, what you might call a focusing event of this hole in the Antarctic ozone layer, which really in the 90s and certainly in the 80s, people were very, very interested in this problem. Kids really cared and their parents really cared. Dr. Susan Solomon is a real-life planeteer. She's an atmospheric scientist 
whose research into CFCs in the 1980s showed that they were responsible for the hole in the ozone layer and eventually led us all to solutions. Public engagement, you know, when people get interested in something and really think about what things they can do, is often a very, very powerful way to solve environmental problems. Now, you know here at Solvable, it's rare that we talk about problems that have already been solved. So let's see what lessons we can learn from Dr. Solomon and how they can be applied. I'm Dr. Susan Solomon, and I never thought when I was young that we could solve the ozone depletion problem, but we did. And we can also solve climate change. I know that one of your earliest inspirations was the ocean explorer and filmmaker Jacques Cousteau. He was a big influence on you as a kid. Can you remember the first time you saw him at work? You know, it was one of those little old 1960s black and white TVs. I was probably about 10. So even though it was black and white, I just could not believe how beautiful the undersea world of Jacques Cousteau actually was. And what an incredible thing it was that he was going down there to study sharks and whales. And that's when I decided, okay, I'm going to be a scientist. And I never wavered from from that view. And I'm so glad that I didn't. How did you make the leap from underwater science to atmospheric work? I thought at first that I would be a biologist. You know, I'd be a marine biologist like Jacques, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but when I got to college and was, you know, looking at biology, I I didn't really like biology, but I really liked chemistry. What I liked about it was the exactitude of it. You measure out exactly how many milliliters of one chemical you combine with another one, and voila, you know, you get some third thing. And it always happens the same way. And I found that to be really beautiful. So I kind of fell in love with chemistry. Then I found out that there was such a thing as chemistry on a planet, not just in a test tube. And uh, Mm -hmm. wow, that's what I decided I would try and go for. And it was, I think, a fabulous decision. Dr. Solomon, in the 1980s, you led a group of researchers to Antarctica. Tell me a little bit about that trip. By that time, I was already a young scientist. I was past my PhD. I was working for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And this incredible thing happened, which was that uh, some scientists reported that the ozone over Antarctica had dropped like a rock. And uh, I was lucky enough to have the chance to go down there and take some measurements, not just of ozone itself, but, but also other chemicals that influence it to try to understand why that was happening. And as far as the experience, you know, it's often said Antarctica isn't a place, it's an obsession. Because everybody that goes there is so blown away by the otherworldly nature of this remarkable, cold, remote, crystalline palace that that is Antarctica. And the constant Mm -hmm. reminders that you really are in the most unexplored place that that exists still uh, on this planet. Um, and, and also just how small you are as a person and how vast and wild nature is. I mean, there's never a greater reminder of that than when you're in a blizzard down in the Antarctic. Can you, you describe that a little more? What's that like? Oh, yeah. I mean, down there, you don't uh, actually usually call them blizzards. You call them herbies. 
because it's a combination of a hurricane and a blizzard, mm. so it became a Herbie. Um, <laughs> it sounds cuter than it is. <laughs> it's very dangerous to go outside in those kind of conditions because you literally cannot see more than a few feet in front of your face. So if you get disoriented at all and you don't know which way is back to the hut that you came out of, you, you probably will die. And I mm-hmm. know people who have. Dr. Solomon, can you tell me a little bit about what ozone actually is and why you went to Antarctica to study there specifically? Yeah. So it was a, a real mystery when the ozone hole opened up. Ozone is uh, uh, O3. So three oxygen atoms stuck together is O3. Oxygen that we breathe is O2 and uh, very, very different. Um, O3 absorbs certain wavelengths of ultraviolet light that are not absorbed by anything else. So it's absolutely critical for the evolution of life on the planet. If we didn't have an ozone layer, there wouldn't be any life at all on this planet, at least not life as we know it. If uh, we have less ozone, then we'll have more skin cancer, we'll have more cataracts. Those are some of the most severe human impacts. But, you know, what about plants? What about animals? You know, it it Mm -hmm. clearly would have massive biological implications because ultraviolet light, you know, anybody who's ever been sunburned or or had cataracts knows that ultraviolet light is very damaging. So it was really a shock when the British Antarctic Survey reported that they'd seen a tremendous decline in the ozone layer over their station. It, It wasn't being seen anywhere else in the world. It wasn't being seen over the Arctic, for example didn't take long for the Japanese at their station to uh, confirm what the British had seen. And uh, eventually the, the satellites came in and were able to actually document the, the full scale of the thing. It's twice the size of the continental United States. I mean, think of that. Mm. It's just massive. And wow. uh, it opens up every year at the end of winter, beginning of spring. So this was a huge mystery, and we went down there to try to help figure out what it is by measuring other stuff, you know. And you could actually see that there was this huge bite taken out of the the normal layer. So there's Mm -hmm. normally uh, sort of a, you know, um, if you turned it on its side and imagined it was a person, it would look like a big nose, right? So there's Mm -hmm. this big Mm -hmm. layer of ozone, and, you know, somebody's eating the nose off of ozone's face, right? It's just, uh, it's incredible. It's so, so we should clarify, this is not something you could actually see with your eyes, right? Right. So you can't see ultraviolet light with your eyes, but we have sensors that can measure ultraviolet light. And since ozone absorbs in the ultraviolet, if there's less ozone, there'll be more ultraviolet. And you can quantify that and say how much it is. We could also, and this was really important, measure chlorine monoxide. And and in my own group, we measured chlorine dioxide, which is related to chlorine monoxide, and that absorbs in the visible. So all these different kinds of measurements by independent methods, they all showed that the chlorine was completely out of whack. And that was very uh, suggestive, certainly. And in, in fact, it really strongly pointed toward the idea that something about the chlorofluorocarbon chemistry over Antarctica was different. Mm. And we, we knew that, that that was a potential cause, and it, indeed it turned out to be the cause. So chlorofluorocarbons, 
we call those CFCs as well. Would you talk about CFCs and remind listeners what those are? Chlorofluorocarbons are a man-made chemical. There's no natural source of these molecules at all. We make them in the lab. They were first discovered in around the, the 20s for use in refrigerators, and they're actually great. They're what makes the uh, compressor able to cool the refrigerator. They're a great insulator. So styrofoam, for example, was, was blown that way back in the day. Home insulation panels were made that way. But the most important use at the time of the discovery of the ozone hole was still in spray cans. So the propellants that get the stuff to come out of the can. Now, the ozone hole wasn't discovered until 1985. But in 1974, two scientists, Molina and Rowland, wrote a paper talking about the fact that these molecules might actually destroy a little bit of ozone someday. And they were talking about a small mm-hmm. effect, a few percent, far in the future, you know, 100 years from now, kind of like the way people used to talk about climate change until maybe the past year or two or three, um, <laughs> when climate change has become more obvious. Yeah. But uh, back in that day, you know, there was no observation that said it was already happening but there was this theory, and Americans were environmentally, I think it's fair to say, very conscious and mm-hmm. realized that they could do something really simple, which was go to their medicine cabinet and get rid of the spray-on deodorant and buy the roll-on next time instead. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did. It created an enormous kickstart because with 75% of the use being for spray cans in 1974 – the American chemical companies suddenly found themselves, you know, in a terrible position. Mm -hmm. There there was no market, you know? I mean, it's like, whoa, the bottom dropped out of uh, everything that they were trying to do with these chemicals. So from the point of view of the U.S. manufacturers, the old stuff wasn't going to sell. So consumer action really was a fantastic kickstart. It had a huge effect on industry, had a few huge effect on uh, the viability of that uh, product. It's just, uh, I think, a wonderful testimony to the power of people. And, and and I agree with that because I remember in the 90s, early 90s, I was in first or second grade, and I remember when that was all people talked about. They were like, hey, you, we got to save the ozone layer. Don't use CFCs. Don't use spray cans. And they mobilized us children to go home. Mommy, daddy, you got to get rid of all the spray can stuff. You can't use this anymore, especially if it says CFCs. And I remember on cans, stuff used to say no CFCs if they didn't have it. It was very popular uh, at that time. And I remember we used to talk about the ozone layer a lot. There was a lot of buzz in the 90s about ozone depletion. But the climate conversation seems to have shifted. We're not necessarily talking about ozone depletion as much anymore. And I'm wondering how tightly linked are ozone depletion and climate change? It's not the major reason why the planet's getting hotter. The climate issue is mainly caused by our burning of fossil fuels, which produces carbon dioxide. And that carbon dioxide absorbs infrared light. It's because we've uh, increased the carbon dioxide by, oh, you know, the natural level that was there, say, around 1800 would have been around 270 parts per million. So in a million air molecules, you'd find 270 carbon dioxide molecules. Now we have something close to 415. 
So, you know, wow. we've, we've, we made a big change in the amount of carbon dioxide. And the one thing, actually, that the ozone-depleting chemicals have in common with carbon dioxide is that they have long lifetimes of the order of 50 to 150 years. Mm-hmm. Carbon dioxide is even longer. Some of it goes away fairly quickly into things like plants and the surface layer of the ocean. Mm-hmm. But in a thousand years, 20% of the carbon dioxide that you um, or I, you know, put in the atmosphere today by driving, for example, will still be there. 20% of it will still be there, continuing to warm the planet. You know, to me, what matters in solving environmental problems is first and foremost, the action of people, the interest of people. With enough public interest, politicians who care can get engaged with the problem because, you know, they've got popular support. And in fact, they can force their opponents to, to, to get engaged. And that's, that's happened uh, already in both problems. Uh, I personally am very optimistic that the kind of public concern and power of the people uh, movement that you're seeing is going to have a huge effect. And uh, of course, you know, there's a role for science. I always say that science alone is never enough to solve an environmental problem, but it's always, always necessary. So it's a necessary but not sufficient condition. You've got to be able to understand the problem. And I think that we do our best job in solving environmental problems when they're personal, mm-hmm. when when people really care about them. You know, we cared about skin cancer. It was personal. It was perceptible. It was easy to see these beautiful images of, you know, how big the ozone hole is, you know, eating all of Antarctica. Uh, and we found practical solutions. We didn't have to give up having deodorant, you know, we could have roll-ons mm-hmm. <laughs> and we didn't have to give up spray cans. You know, we could, we could actually put other stuff in the can and we don't have yeah. to give up refrigerators. We'd have to give up any of it. We just had to develop practical solutions. And I think when you look at climate change, it's becoming way more personal, which is why there is this level of public engagement, way more perceptible. You know, the summers are warmer for sure. And definitely it's drier. And of course, the fires in the West are terrifying. The flooding that happened this year in so many different parts of the world, whether it's China or Europe. So personal, perceptible, and the solutions are becoming practical. You know, I really think we are on the road to fixing this problem. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? 
so the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility, meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiments and Billy made Raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on Story Button, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I appreciate optimism. I I do want to talk more specifically about the ways in which these movements happened in the 80s. The same year you were doing research in Antarctica, the United Nations created the Montreal Protocol. Would you tell me about that time? Sure. The original Montreal Protocol was very clever. All that it required was that the growth of global use of chlorofluorocarbons stop. So in other words, they weren't saying you had to phase these molecules out right away. They were saying, don't make more next year than you made this year. You know, it wasn't that threatening to, you know, things like refrigerator manufacturers or mm-hmm. other users of, of these molecules yet. And it gave a mandate to the scientists, really, and the technologists report back to assess the state of the science, the state of understanding of what you could do instead. And when the diplomats met again in 1990, by that time, it had become clear that the depletion uh, over Antarctica wasn't unique, that we were actually seeing significant depletion over mid-latitudes, too. So 
you know, over Washington, D.C., over over London, over all the different places in the world. Uh, you know, we have dozens of stations where ozone has been measured. So that, of course, created a tremendous amount of impetus to do more. And the other thing that was happening, and I think this is really important, is that just the fact that the protocol existed really sent a strong message to industry. You know, it said, hey, you know, yeah, you've, we've frozen this stuff now, but it, it's clearly sending a message that this is not going to be a growth industry <laughs> and it might actually be a shrinking industry. So maybe, you know, the smart money is on substitutes. So, for example, the chlorofluorocarbons at one time were used as solvents and it was found that you could actually substitute lemon juice in a lot of cases. So, you know, it was just amazing how quickly industry pivoted. You know, the chemical industry is, uh, can be very nimble when they're forced to be. So it was a perfect problem in that it affected humans. We could see how it affects humans. We immediately reacted to it. Whereas climate change, we're really saying at some point this is going to happen to the planet. And that happening to the planet then affects us, which feels like it's harder to make that appeal to humans. So I'm asking, how are you still optimistic about this? Help me be more optimistic. <laughs> okay. Let me also say, by the way, you're right. I think ozone was kind of a, you know, it was the uh, the Goldilocks problem as far as having everything just line up perfectly for it to, to be very, very solvable. But it's not unique, actually. When you look at uh, lead in paint, lead in gasoline, acid rain, how good a job we did on uh, dealing with smog in this country. You know, it had a lot of the same elements, a social movement, politicians who really hugely supported it, options for practical solutions, namely the catalytic converter in your car. I mean, I could name another half a dozen issues, all of which follow that same pattern of personal, perceptible, practical, um, and, and people. Maybe that's the fourth P is people. Mm -hmm. um, but, but when it comes to climate change, I, I am optimistic. And the reason is because, you know, a f say 10, 15 years ago, people would say to me, well, you know, climate change, it's just not that personal to me. And I think the waiting is over. I really do. I don't see how anyone can look at the pictures of people drowning in subways that was in China this summer and churches in Europe that have been there for hundreds of years getting swept away and wildfires destroying the volume of the size of the state of Rhode Island and California and the, and the air pollution from that being horrendous. I just don't think you can realistically look around and say climate change isn't here. Climate change is here. Uh, it is personal. And people are not heartless. I mean, most people actually, you know, will do something to help their fellow man as long as it's practical. Support for alternative energy has come a long way, particularly development around solar and wind has yielded tremendous benefits. And here's the amazing thing. If you're going to build a power plant in America today, the cheapest type of power to produce is solar and wind. So you won't build a coal plant in America today. Everything that, that President Trump tried to do to prop up coal 
you know, it didn't work. There have been lots of retirements of coal plants in the years of the Trump presidency. And maybe, maybe let's not even talk about presidents. Let's talk about GM. GM has announced that they are going to only make electric vehicles by 2025. So what is that telling you? They're getting the message, right? I mean, industry's got the signal. Dr. Solomon, how has the Paris Climate Agreement worked similarly to the Montreal Protocol in terms of influencing industry? Because of the tremendous amount of money involved, no nation is going to comfortably sign up to a big cut in emission if it's a binding agreement. I mean, the Montreal Protocol could be binding because of the nature of those chemicals, but but this had to be a voluntary agreement. China and the U.S. are, are not going to sign up to that. So, so it's voluntary. We make a promise. We say we're going to phase out this much by 20, 2030 or 2040. That's huge. The message that sends to industry is enormous. And the, I think the Paris Agreement is a masterstroke for that. So um, I'm I'm, I'm a patient woman, and I'm, I'm very optimistic. Is any of this optimism fueled by the fact that the ozone layer has started to heal? And you can directly attribute that to the type of work that you were doing in the 80s and 90s? I mean, what my feeling when I see that is, behold the awesome power of we the people. That's what made this happen. And, you know, my grandmother made it to 101. So if I do also, then I will actually get to see the ozone hole completely close. And I've already seen it start to heal. Dr. Sullivan, that's exciting. That's that's exciting. There, there's a couple things you've said. You said that you're, you're patient. Um, and I appreciate that. I think sometimes it can get lost in the climate fight, uh, the urgency that that is that is spoken uh, versus the work that that is being done and the moves that are being made. So it's really good to hear you say that. And you were awarded the National Medal of Science in 1999, the Blue Planet Prize in 2004. You shared a Nobel Peace Prize in 2007 with Al Gore as a member of the IPCC. You were inducted into the Women's Hall of Fame in 2009, all related to your work on CFC. So that's you have an incredible track record here. Is there anything about your work that people get wrong or miss because it's so exciting to congratulate you on the big public wins? We would not have gotten where we got to about the ozone hole if people hadn't stopped using spray cans. So I, I wish they would congratulate themselves and not me more often. Um, I know that sounds corny, but I really, truly do feel that way. Can you talk about one to two things that listeners can do today to help uh, slow down or reverse climate change if they want to be involved uh, in in being a part of the people of the four Ps that you said? Yeah, that is such a great question. So the first thing that they should be doing is writing letters to their congressmen and uh, if they can, going out there and holding a sign, being part of peaceful, you know, and nonviolent <laughs> demonstrations to make make their opinions heard in whatever opportunities they have to do that. They should also be talking to people in their churches or, you know, their clubs or their schools or whatever. The more we talk about it, the more people will, will get engaged. As far as personal actions, you know, one of the things that I personally have done is to cut down on meat in my diet. I mean, as you know, that 
the production of meat in particular is uh, is a significant source of greenhouse gases. So cut down a little bit. It's actually good for you too. And another thing that you can do is uh, use any single-use plastic that you get at least twice. So if you get a plastic bag, you know, use it again, wash it out, use it three times. Better not to use it, but if you do have to use it, and you know, even like Water bottles, of course, are another great example where there's, you know, we have good water in this country, by and large. It's better to bring your own water. But if you forget and you're at the baseball game, you don't want to get dehydrated. Okay, buy a a bottle of plastic water, but then don't throw it away or even, you know, recycle it right away. Wash it out well, but, you know, use it. You can use them probably 10 times, but at least double down and think about reducing the market for single-use plastic by a factor two. Wow, that would be huge. Dr. Solomon, I appreciate you for being on the show today. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for asking me. It was a thrill. Dr. Susan Solomon is a professor of environmental studies at MIT. She was awarded the National Medal of Science, the prestigious Blue Planet Prize, shared a Nobel Peace Prize in 2007 with Al Gore, and was inducted into the Women's Hall of Fame in 2009. And Solomon Glacier in Antarctica is named after her. Solvable is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Research by David Ja. Booking by Lisa Dunn. Our managing producer is Sasha Mathias. And our executive producer is Mia LaBelle. I'm Ronald Young Jr. Thanks for listening. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.